What do we see? This is part B or part two of the original question that we asked during communion from Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. So here we are at the start of another year. Last Sunday we gave thanks for the past and this morning, the first Sunday of the year, we look ahead to the challenge that is before us. Some of you might have already started counting the days down to Christmas again. We know that Easter is just around the corner because the Woolies and others are already selling the hot cross buns. So the, uh, the business people aren't missing a trick. But what do we see? As a challenge for this first Sunday, I want us to consider some of the, the truths that we find in these verses from the Old Testament. Now, the book of Haggai is one of the, the shortest books in the Bible. In most Bibles, it's only two pages long. But, I, but don't be fooled by its length. Just because something is short doesn't mean it is not significant. These two pages are packed with some real truths that speak to us today. Some background. Just uh, a little background on the book. It's it's about the return, this book is about the return of the Jews to Judah after they were exiled in Babylon. So they were returning around about the year 536, 536 before Christ. After the destruction of Jerusalem 70 years earlier by the Babylonians, the the Jews had been scattered to to different countries that were taken captive. The land, the city of Jerusalem, the glorious city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And these people were exiled. The book of Daniel tells you a little bit of what the life was like, mainly to Babylon. Today, uh, Babylon would be Iraq. As history, as the as things happen, I just read a little bit of the story of how the Game of Thrones happens. One nation rises to power, one king, and then it swaps over and moves on to the next. Well, who came after the Babylonians? It was the Persians. And the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree. Where, was, where is Persia today? Persia today is Iran. So in about uh, 539 BC, the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire and they gave permission to the Jews to go back, to return back to Judah, to return to their homeland and start the rebuilding process of the city of Jerusalem and mainly concentrate on the building of the temple and then the temp- and then the walls. The king of Persia was Cyrus, and uh, he appointed two men to lead to lead this population of about fifty thousand people to go back to Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was appointed as governor of Judah, and uh, Right away, Zerubbabel began the rebuilding of the temple. The other person was Joshua. Joshua is not to be confused with the Joshua from Exodus and the conquest. He was appointed as high priest. 
Now, as this returning population of 50,000 came to Jerusalem, they encountered difficult conditions, rubbish and rubble. And they got working. There was a lot of enthusiasm at the beginning, at the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple and its walls. But as these things go, as the work just dragged on and on, enthusiasm gave way to discouragement and apathy. They struggled to provide for materials that they needed and food to sustain and to keep their strength. And so the daily necessities of life, just providing for food, became the main focus rather than the building of the temple and the walls. Now one of the main reasons for discouragement was the the constant opposition that these return inhabitants faced from the Samaritan neighbours. The last thing you need when you're trying to rebuild something is to have your neighbours oppose you. We don't know about that. Heckling. It's like the, the wicket keeper in cricket who's constantly trying to make you lose your concentration by talking about your grandmother and that type of stuff. This is what the Samaritans were doing. So when the exiles returned to Judah, the Samaritans, uh, what happened was that Samaritans initially requested, do you guys want some help? And we're here to help you. To, and, but, the, but they were considered impure. They were considered violators of the law because the Samaritans had married other people. They had worshipped other gods. And... Uh, they had their own exile, but they, theirs was more horrific because they were just scattered all over the place. So when they offered these Jews to reconstruct the temple, they said no and the Samaritans felt insulted. So after they were rejected, they retaliated by disrupting the work of rebuilding the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So consequently, the initial work on the temple stopped it wouldn't resume for another 16 years at about 520 BC. And the reconstruction was restarted through the prophetic ministries of Haggai and the other prophet was Zechariah, who, whose job was to hold the leaders to account, to hold the people to account, to hold both the, the governor and the, and the religious leaders and everybody to say, guys, let's not lose hope. We need to keep going. We need to trust that God is with us and to focus on the task at hand. So let's get stuck in our passage. In verses 2 to 3, we look at past glories. Ask them, Haggai says, the word of the Lord, through Haggai, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? In this part of the book, we, we see that it wasn't just the opposition from outside or the heckling and everything else that was going on that was getting to the population. It was also an issue from within. You see, there were a few 
old timers, a few survivors from the golden years. These survivors were, were discouraged and their attitude was affecting the morale of the, the younger people, the younger generation who were trying to do the bulk of the hard work. To understand the glory of the first temple, you need to go back to 1 Kings chapter 6 and there you can read about the magnificence of Solomon's temple. The building project was enormous. It involved so much planning, a huge army of workmen from different countries. We're we're talking about 30,000 people who were employed in cutting the timber for the project. 80,000 cutters of stone in the quarries, 70,000 ordinary workers in the, in the building and, the, and with their leading hands and supervisors as the building was, was getting built. The first temple had gold, it had silver and precious stones imported from other lands. Money was not an issue, the best of the best. It was elaborate, it was glorious. What else did it have? The the first temple, Solomon's temple, housed the Ark of the Covenant. Now it was no longer in Israel's possession. At the dedication of the first temple, the altar was lit by fire from heaven and the, the temple was filled with the Shekinah which represented the presence of God. The temple they were working on now was supposed to replace Solomon's temple that was destroyed. This temple was built on a smaller scale, limited budget, fewer resources. Then comes, then come these uh, these older people who were, who had a, a very clear picture of they remembered what the other one was like and they were comparing it, what they had now compared to the other one from years ago and you put yourself in their shoes. In their minds, this did not even begin to compare with the, the splendour of the first temple, of Solomon's temple. Imagine, you can imagine some of their comments. Can you believe that they're actually trying to rebuild it? This, this thing here, it's just not going to measure up to the old one. We just don't have the material, we don't have the, the commitment, we don't have the people, the, the craftsmen to do the job. This is hopeless. It just will never be the same. And they whinged and whined their way. But was this fair on the generation that was coming up? Is this really fair that the old fogies were making life difficult for the younger ones? Think about it. It was the rebelliousness, the idolatry, the godlessness which caused the destruction of the city in the first place. So don't come here and, and, and start comparing one glory with another when you guys were the, the ones that actually caused all of this. 
It was your unfaithfulness which brought all that destruction in the first place. And now you're whinging because things aren't the same. What's going on? So please, just take off those rose-coloured glasses and get a reality check. This generation, believe it or not, this generation that was coming back from, from Babylon was more committed to purity, to worshipping God than ever. After the exile, never again would the Jews have a problem with idolatry, ever. They will not worship other gods. Yes, they were materially poor, but their spiritual richness was going to be something to admire. So these are the past glories. Let's look at the present reality. The second part of verse 3, the prophet asks the question, how does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? What do you see? It's pretty depressing, isn't it? It's rubble. It's destruction. It's pretty discouraging. How does it look to you now when you compare this to the other one? So Haggai delivers another message from the Lord by asking this important question in the middle of the third verse. What do you see? The old timers would have answered, this is just a pile of junk. Why are we even trying? Nothing will be like the good old days. What do you see? I think this is a good question to ask during this first week of the year. How does it look to you now, the future? Compared to the past, it probably looks more than a little different now than it did back when. The social changes that we have witnessed in this past five, ten years have been unprecedented in history. Many of the moral walls have been torn down. In the futile effort to bring everybody together, we have seen the opposite happen, with families, society more divided than ever. The words from the book of Judges become all too real. People did what was right in their own eyes. Now, understand that before the exile, the mission of the prophets was to bring the people back to God, to warn them of the consequences if they didn't come back to God, to stop following other gods. But now that they've paid the price, that God had punished them, now the mission of the prophet is to, from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 2, is to speak tenderly to proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. 
It's a different message. The same God that was with you during the first, the, the building of the first temple is the same God that is with you in the building of this second temple. He is here today. It is the same God we are talking about. He tells them, the prophet tells them to get going, to cheer up. I'm still God. I'm still here. I'm looking out for you. I haven't changed. As we look forward to the prospects of this year, what do we see? Do we see doom and gloom or are we filled with hope of better things? You read the newspapers, the headlines tell us to prepare for more pain, financial pain, house prices will continue to plummet, construction is going to stall and so on and so forth. Other forecasters tell us that stability will return after the election and people will simply move on irrespective of who is in government. So what do you see? Do you see clouds or do you see sunshine? Do you see despair or do you see hope? Behavioural scientists actually uh, have discovered that we usually see things that we are prepared to see. And apparently this is all centred in a network of nerve cells called the reticular activating system. And all of us have this in our brain. Once something has been brought to our attention and we have observed it, we have been prepared to see it, we'll see it virtually everywhere we go. For example, if you decide to buy a car and then you signed over, you you drive out of the yard or you drive away from the house where you bought it, drive it home for the next few weeks, I know this has happened to me, it's happened to you, you're going to see the same cars everywhere on the roads. You're going to see them in the car yards, everywhere you're going to spot the same car because you're comparing, you're worried, this is the buyer's regret type of thing, whether you've had a good deal, whether the car you bought is actually better than the one that you saw there or have you made a a huge mistake where you ripped off. What happened? Those cars were always there. But the moment you were prepared, at that time you weren't prepared to see them. Now you see them everywhere. Your reticular activating system has kicked in and suddenly they are everywhere. Happens in other areas of life. Doesn't have to be everywhere, it just has to be in one spot. Somebody very close to me, uh, I won't name them, very close to me, Uh, built a house, a brand new house and they moved into their brand spanking new house a couple of years ago. Well, just last week a furniture was dropped on the tile and there's a chip on the tile about that big. About that big. So when I, I, I went to visit, this person is 
just so upset at uh, the fact that the furniture was dropped and that it's damaged a perfect house because this reticular activating system cannot look at anything else in the house but it goes straight to that little speck in the tile that was cracked. It will never be the same again. And she was going on. No, we're not. I know, you're different, right? You're not like that. Your car is perfect in every way. A little, little tiny thing like that. Happens in so many areas of life, isn't it? We lose perspective. We see what we want to see, what we are prepared to see. It's like riding a motorcycle. If you look at that stump when you're doing a trail bike riding, you're going to hit it. Your motorbike is going to follow your eyes. (laughs) So make sure you're looking at the road and not at the rock or the stump. Otherwise, down you go. I've been there. So do we see doom and gloom in 2019 or hope? Because if we are prepared ourselves to see sunshine and opportunities, then despite the trials and difficulties we may face, we're going to get there. Because another interpretation of this is what you see is what you get. It's not just about buyer beware, but also pointing your eyes in the direction of where you want to move your life to. How do you see the church in 2019 and beyond? As you look around, what do you see? Do you just see this rented hall? We're going to be here forever. Do you see a room for people with potential to make a difference in the lives and of children, of men and women and family for, for the glory of God? Do you see human beings with so much potential? Do you see the, the emperors, the ones who pull the, you know, the handles in our world, the finance gurus and everybody else, the rich and the billionaires and the trillionaires, are they guiding history? Or is history being moulded in the, in the cradles, in the lives and the young people that are, that are growing? Do you see the despair or do you see the potential? So the challenge ahead, verses 4 to 5. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. In the midst of 
of the gloom and the discouragement, God sends his servant to fire up his people. No less than three times God says, be strong. Be strong, he says to Zerubbabel, the political governor. He says, be strong to Joshua, the religious high priest. He says, be strong to all the people. Every level of society is included in this challenge to be strong. From the political leader to the religious priest to the general population, the word be strong is there. It means, it means gird up your loins, look it up, get ready because the challenge, there's a big challenge ahead. The reality is, the reality is, and this we all need a reality check, is that things are actually going to get harder. They're going to get harder rather than easier in the years ahead. In the words, however, in the words of JFK, John F. Kennedy, he said, remember his words, don't pray for easy lives, but pray to be stronger men. And the reason you can be strong is not because you have just paid $5,000 to go and listen to Tony Robbins about positive thinking. No. The reason you can be strong is because God says, I am with you. I am with you. I'm the one that actually makes the difference. What I want you to do, what you need to do is to be strong. Do not be fearful. Why? Because I have made a covenant with you. My spirit remains among you so you have nothing to fear. And then the future hope, verses 6 to 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once again shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. How many times have we read the Lord Almighty? It's the name of the Lord. It's... it's He is the one that is there. So if they need strength, if they need courage, who are they going to rely on? The Lord Almighty. In the same breath that he tells them, do not fear, in the same breath he tells them that there's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on. And where's the shaking going to happen? It's not going to be because of climate change, if you believe in it. This is beyond that. It will be, the shaking will happen in the heavens, in the earth, in the sea, in the dry land and in the nations. Something big is going to happen, something really, really big. I've got to love our news media that continues to use superlatives when it comes to the weather, when it they're talking about financial markets, when they're talking about our sporting, our national sporting teams 
and the turmoil in, in Canberra and the political scene, they just go from one superlative, it's, it's a disaster, it's, it's terrible, it's unprecedented, and then they go on like this. They have to recycle the same garbage because they run out quickly and they have to follow the news cycle because tomorrow is a new day. However, when God tells us that things are going to shake, you better believe it. But no matter how much shaking is going on, do not fear. I've got this and I've got you. To a people that were running out of resources as they built the temple of God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. To the people who were kept comparing the present to the past, he said, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. To a people that had lost hope that the best has already happened, has come and gone, he tells them the best is still to come. Who is it? It's the desired by all nations. Let's go back. There were two leaders, right? Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. The other prophet of this time, apart from Haggai, another one who was, another prophet who was ministering during this crucial time was Zechariah. And God gave the other prophet, Zechariah, he's got his own book in the Bible, he told him that to place a crown on Joshua's head. That's on Zechariah chapter 6, verse 11. So God told Zechariah to place a crown on Joshua's head. Joshua was a high priest. So why on earth would God tell him to put a crown on a high priest? Joshua was already high priest and was now crowning him king. And I suppose at the time, it, it, a little bit odd, but it was seen as an encouragement to continue the work of rebuilding the temple. But there is more to this strange act that they could not possibly fully understand at the time, 520 years before it actually happened. Because you see, it was a visual prophecy of a desired by all nations who was no less than the future Messiah. He would be both what? High priest and king. And significantly, and this is the beauty of scripture, significantly Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name Jesus. Thus, the priest king Joshua was foreshadowing, pointing towards the coming Messiah and the prophecy extended even to the name that he would have. That's the marvellous thing, isn't it? And God controls history. What do you see? What do you see? What do we see? It's an important question because what we see and what we are prepared to see is what we are going to get. 
Remember, God is alive. He's sovereign. He's still on his throne. We have hope. Hope in him. Because nothing is impossible with him. He wants to do significant things through you, through his church. God waits for a willing people, a willing church to answer his call to respond to his challenge, to reach out to a world that desperately needs to hear this message of faith and hope. May God give us the strength to carry on with the challenges ahead as we go in his name. Amen.